Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. This is that time of year when we're going to start looking at the carols. We start hearing the carols. How many of you listen to Warm 106.9? You know, from Thanksgiving on, it's all Christmas, all day long, and we start enjoying that change of season. And when we start to hear the carols play, we know that there is something changing about the season, and that feels really, really good to us. Um, some of us listen only from Thanksgiving on. Some of us listen all year long. Anybody listen to carols all year long? Anytime's fair game. That's me and a couple of other non-Grinches in my household. And we enjoy listening to that because it's so much fun, and there's something about it that makes it um, enjoyable to hear when something begins to change. And we shift out of the things that are familiar into things that are less familiar to us, and it helps us to awaken to what is actually going on. And that is what this season of Advent is about. We talk about these familiar themes of love, joy, peace, hope. And sometimes those words become so familiar to us that they're almost ubiquitous. They're so familiar that we don't even uh, think about the wonder of what that means when we consider this Advent season. But Advent means arrival. It means that there's a coming. And there's an anticipation when we look forward to something arriving. So let's think about like a new baby. If, if someone is pregnant, if you're pregnant, if someone in this room is pregnant, uh, we have a few of those right now, you're excited. You're looking forward to the baby. You know that it's going to be nine months of waiting, but you know that there's going to be something to look forward to on the other side of it. Now, we can pass by people every single day. We watched that video where it showed seven billion ones. We had these seven billion people on our planet, and we pass by people every single day. But when we think about a new baby coming, there's a sense of excitement and anticipation about it. How about when we go on vacation or when we're traveling? When we think about and look forward to seeing a change of scenery, then we begin to look forward with anticipation to what's about to happen. It's not just I'm getting in my car and driving down I-5 every day. It's no longer just traveling those kind of little errands back and forth, but it's something that we look forward to. Or how about snow days? Snow days, yay. All the teachers, all the students in the room. <laughs> we look forward. As soon as the meteorologist says, hey, there might be a chance of snow, we begin to prepare and we go to the store and we get, because it's a change in our routine. It's something that breaks us from the familiar scenery. And when that snow begins to fall and we see the trees covered with snow and we see the, land, the, the area out there and Dwayne's dragging out his cross-country skis so he can hope to use those, we look forward to it. It's not just another day. And that's what this season of Advent's about, this anticipation, the longing, the waiting, so that when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, when we celebrate the coming of Jesus, there is anticipation and excitement. And that's what we're talking about wonder in this season. Not to just think about hope, peace, joy, and love in the everyday sense of the word, but God, help us to wake, it, wake up, to wake up to the wonder. The English Oxford Dictionary describes wonder as a feeling of amazement and admiration, Something that's caused by something beautiful, remarkable, or unfamiliar. Dictionary.com adds a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration 
And again, it's caused by something that's unexpected or inexplicable. And so today, as we talk about awakening to the wonders of God's love, my prayer for all of us is that we're not just thinking about love in the everyday kind of, I love chocolate, I love candy, I love my fifth grade boy crush, I love, uh, you know, all those little things that we think about. I don't have a fifth grade boy crush. Let me just, let me just, we're just going to clear that up right now. I'm thinking about all of us and all the general senses of the word that we use that. But when we think about that word, we want it to move beyond something that is just an everyday common use of the word and awaken to that. In Psalm 17, 7, says this, show me the wonders of your great love. Show me, God, show me the wonders of your great love. Psalm 31, 21 says, praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love. We're going to be going to Isaiah 29, and as we turn there and as we prepare our hearts to hear, I'd like for us to pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, You came to this earth, part of God's wonderful plan for each of us. You came so that you could be near to us. You could be God with us. And God, in this season, there are so many feelings, so many emotions, so many experiences that each of us have, both positive and negative, that shade our perception of who you are and who we are. And Lord, today I pray that we would be rooted and grounded in the wonder of your great love for us, a love that is strong, a love that is steadfast, a love that is merciful, that is kind. Help us to awaken to the wonders of your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read together Isaiah 29, verses 10 through 19. It's kind of an unfamiliar passage, but a lot of our Advent readings are, aren't they? (laughs) We dig back in the Old Testament a little bit and read some passages that are less familiar to us. In Isaiah 29, verse 10 through 19, it says this, The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll, And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, they will say, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near with me, near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder Upon wonder. Notice that. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who can see us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is set formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll 
And out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. This is an unusual passage of scripture. Parts of it may be a bit familiar to us if you have been around church circles for a while. But this is kind of an obscure passage. And what's going on here? What's going on? These people are asleep to wonder. They're asleep to wonder. Now, that looks pretty cozy to me. But what God was trying to say to them is, you're asleep and you're in danger. And I need you to wake up. I need you to pay attention. I need you to correct some things so that you can do this. Now, our bodies have an amazing ability to make sensory adaptations. We make this in our sight, in sounds, in our smells. If something becomes either overwhelming or overfamiliar, we begin to tune it out. So like if you're at home, and let's say you have this pile of clothes in the corner of your room, guess what? The tendency will be to just tune out that side of the clothes in the corner of your room over time and just go past it, and you don't even really even see it anymore because you've made a sensory adaptation. If a sound is overwhelming or too powerful, we have the ability to tune it out. Students do this all the time, do they not? We hear the teacher, wah, 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 Charlie Brown, and we just tune it completely out, okay? We have that ability because God built within us an ability to make a sensory adaptation. But did you know the most powerful adaptation you can make in your senses is with the sense of smell? And we call this going nose blind. Anybody seen these Febreze commercials? It's like you think that you smell like a, like a beautiful living room, but instead all they can smell is the cheeseburger that you cooked, right? <laughs> or the pets you own or the big, you know, smelly gym sock. You know, you think that everybody else can't smell it, but in reality everybody else can smell it because they're not too over-familiar with the scents. And there's a woman named Pamela Dalton. She's a cognitive psychologist at the Monell Chemical Census Center. She's been studying this particular sensory adaptation for over two decades. Can you imagine just studying being nose blind for over two decades? And she said it's actually a very robust phenomenon. It's why people go on vacation and come back and say, it's so musty in here, I better open the windows. Well, it's possible that your house could be musty or it could just be that you've become over-familiar and you don't notice it anymore. That's what's going on in this passage in Isaiah. These people have been around the things of God for so long that it's become too familiar, and they're no longer paying attention to the things that God would have them awaken to. And so he talks to them about their spiritual blindness, about their apathy, and he says, I know you're asleep because I caused that deep sleep to come over you. And you know what? Your prophets, the ones that, that speak and have that ability to speak on my behalf to you, they're going to be silent, so they're not going to be able to see it. They're not going to be able to hear my voice because I want you to lean in and start paying attention again. I want to get your attention. And in the last part of Isaiah, we talked about uh, Isaiah 40 in our very first week on the, on the week of hope. And from Isaiah 40 to the end, he's speaking to a group of people who have already been conquered. And so he speaks comfort to them, comfort, comfort my people. But in this first two-thirds of Isaiah, where Isaiah 29 finds itself, they're talking to a people. Isaiah is speaking to a rebellious people. 
people who need to wake up. And so the Lord says in verse 13 that there's a contrast of happening, this near and far. He says, the people say, the people are coming near to me with their mouth. They're honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Now, how many of you grew up with Sesame Street or have ever seen it? You know the lovable little, little blue character, Grover? He has this little segment. Every, every, anyone know what it is? Near, far. And he teaches this concept of distance by coming near and he'll run up, you know, and he'll look and he'll say, near. And then he runs and he'll go into the background of it and he said, far. Near, <laughs> far. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, you've come near to me with the things that you say, with your worship, with, with all of those things, and your mouths honor me, you're doing all the right things there. And he said, not only that, but you're, you're worshiping me based out of human rules that you've been taught. So you even know how to do the right things. You can say the right things, you can do the right things, but God is speaking some truth here to say, but I really know what's going on in your heart. And in your heart, you are removed from me. See, in their worship, their hearts were far, and they were ignoring and missing the most foundational and important God-given rule, not human-given rule, but God-given rule. Back in Deuteronomy, it said, you will love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these commandments I give to you, these commands, not the human rules that we get used to obeying, but the God-given rules that he gives us for our life and for our blessing and for our protection. He said, these rules I give you, and they're to be on your hearts. So instead of his commands being on their hearts, they were missing the mark completely and they'd gotten off, car, off course, and their hearts were far from him. Their hearts were far from him. And the, the choice of word there is not talking about just they, their hearts are far from me in the sense that God had walked away from them. So the distance they felt was not because of any action on God's part, but it said, basically, you've removed your heart from me. In other words, I've turned away and I'm walking away from God and I'm putting the distance between me and God because I'm no longer just worshiping him with my words and my human-based rules, but I've ignored the thing that is meant to give me life and they'd remove their hearts. Now, pilots have a rule that they call the one in 60 rule. And it's because of this rule that they make mid-course corrections. I think we've all, uh, we're all pretty familiar with that term. But basically what it says is for every 60 miles that you travel, you're going to, a pilot, if a pilot travels 60 miles, then an error in the track of your course is going to equal about one mile. Okay, so for every 60 miles you travel, you're going to get off course by about one mile. That's that one degree of difference. And so pilots have to make mid-course corrections 
to pay attention to how, what the wind speed is happening. What is the condition? You know, are they lined up not just with true north, but where is true north in comparison and in relation with the, um, with the, with the true heading? So I can be thinking I'm traveling from this point to that point, but over time, we all have a tendency. This is built into the physics, and pilots understand it. You have a tendency to drift just ever so slightly. I can think I'm heading here, but I'm really heading here. So pilots have to make adjustments to the, to the position of their plane to make sure they're headed in the right direction. If I keep going in 60 miles, I might still be able to see the airport a mile off and kind of get back on track. But what if I'm traveling hundreds or thousands of miles? The potential cost of not making a mid-course correction could be fatal. There's a lot at stake. And that's why God is getting their attention. He said, the sooner you make this correction, the sooner you wake up to your true position and you get back on track, guess what? The easier it is to make a mid-course correction, is it not? The farther we go away from him, the harder it is and the longer it takes to get back on track. And that's why God in his love will not allow us to keep traveling in a direction that's going to hurt us and cause our spiritual decline. And that's why these people who were asleep to wonder, God is going to introduce an astound with wonder. And that's why he said in verse, in verse 13, therefore once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. Notice that. He didn't say this is the first time I'm telling you I hope you get it right. He's saying, once more, I'm going to do this because God is so patient with us. He knows, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? We all have that tendency to wander away from the, from the goodness of God and to not recognize his goodness and his patience and his mercy. And so because of that, again and again and again and again, God had spoken to this group of people over centuries to try to get them to wake up and he's done this before, and he's going to keep doing it. Now, this word for wonder here is the same wonder that we read about earlier in Psalm 17, Psalm 31, the word pala. It means to deal wondrously, to marvel. And there's a, both a positive and a negative contrast. This aurora borealis is beautiful, is it not? It's beautiful to look at. But not everybody who first saw that and experienced that over generations felt it was a wonderful experience. At first, it's kind of terrifying because it looks a whole lot different than anything else I normally see in a night sky. This is on my bucket list. Man, I hope I get to see something like this someday. But I'm looking for that. I would go in search of being able to see the aurora borealis. But if you wake up in the night and you've never seen or experienced that before, you'd be like, what is happening? What's going on? It's terrifying and it's beautiful. And that's what this passage kind of represents. In the Cambridge Bible, it talks about to do a marvelous wonder. And it's, it's rendered to work wonderfully with this people, wonderfully and wondrously. Both wonderfully and wondrously, like, wow, something that's going to astonish everyone, something that's distinct, something that surpasses anything that you've ever experienced before, something that's extraordinary. That's what he says. I'm going to do something in you that will shake you up, that will make you think, and that's going to help you come alive again to what I want to do in you. Now, there are times when God astounds us. I mean, we're just in awe. And there are times and seasons in our lives when things 
truly astound us. Like, I can't even figure it out. This is not what I thought would happen. There are times when I experience wonder in every positive sense of the word. And there are times when I experience wonders that cause me to wonder about what's going on. God can use either one. We've experienced that as a family over these last few weeks in what we experienced with Melora, who's doing wonderfully, by the way. I mean, she is making a miraculous recovery and is taking the rest of this month off. And I mean, it's just extraordinary when you see what God has done in her. We all experienced something that was very difficult for us to understand. It was very difficult for us to watch. But how wonderfully... God has worked in that to start waking us up. Has that happened in any of your lives? It's definitely happened in my life. And I've talked with enough of you to know that it's stirring things in you. It's like God just came along and in that one moment kind of dug below the surface and lifted a whole bunch of stuff up. That things that we wanted to just kind of keep under the surface. And I grew up in Texas and, and there's a huge, you know, we, we see the, the, um, like the plows that are working in the field. And usually you think of it as kind of this sh- more, little more shallow blade that just goes and it turns over and works up the surface of the, of the earth. But every couple of years, farmers have to go through fields with a very, very deep blade that will go and will turn over large amounts of soil because it can't just do the surface work anymore. That's good in some seasons, but every now and then, They've got to change gear, get the larger blade, and they've got to go so slow. The work is painfully slow. As that blade turns, digs below the surface, lifts a deeper layer up, and brings it up. Then you can go back and work it with a smaller plow. And That's kind of what happens in seasons like this. When God goes below the surface of what we experience in our everyday life, and he says, I want to lift this thing up because I don't want you to remain asleep and apathetic to this anymore. I want to astound you so that you can wake up, and I want to do it in a way that is going to stir you. Things that you take for granted, even in something as simple as our schedules, the ability to control our schedule. In a season like that, has your schedule been disrupted these last few weeks? (laughs) It shifts, it shifts you completely out of that. And there's a goodness and a mercy and a kindness of the Lord that he shows toward us when he does things like this. And that's why he said in, in Isaiah 29, 14 through 17, there's going to be some things that you know or you think you possess that are going to be stripped away. The wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. He said even in verse 15, that sometimes the things that you think that you're hiding from the Lord, you go to great depths to hide your plans from the Lord, thinking who's going to know it anyway? You lose your autonomy and your self-sufficiency in those times, do we? don't we? In 16 and 17, he talks about this pot that's, that thinks that, that wants to say to the potter, do you know what you're doing? You know, I'm in control of my life. I know how things are going. And even in verse 17, it says, in a very short time, Will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? Now, if, if you have any kind of familiarity with geography, you know that Lebanon was known for the tall and mighty cedars, these big, beautiful, majestic trees. But instead, he said, is Lebanon not going to be just turned into a fertile field? 
I'm going to wipe it out. We're going to start all over here. Some seasons are like that. And we lose those things that, that we want to hold on to us. We even lose our identity. You're no longer just the cedars of Lebanon, but I'm going to reshape everything that you think you know about yourself. And again, this is a good gift. So what about the wonders of his love? What about the wonders of his love that we talked about in Psalm 17 and, and Psalm 31? Again, these words for wonder is the same thing. Whether God is dealing with you in your life in a way that is awakening you in every fresh sense of the word to the wonder of his love, or whether you're walking through a season where you're experiencing the wonders of life and love, God is equally present. And I want you to know we only read the first half of those verses. I want to just hold on to show me the wonders of your love, but let's look at what else comes with that. Psalm 16, verse 6 through 12. I'm only going to read parts of this. It says, I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those you who take refuge in you from their foes. This is not the kind of show me the wonders of your love. I'm giddy. I'm happy. Everything is wonderful. This is a man who is facing real enemies. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts. Their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They surround me, their eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. It's in that circumstance that he prays, show me the wonders of your great love. Psalm 17 Psalm 31 says, praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. Our circumstances are being used by God to help shape us and show us the beauty and the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of God. To show us love in a way that we can't experience without these other hard times as well. Have you ever felt like you were a city under siege? Anybody there today? Yeah. Is God astounding you with wonder? He will show you the wonders of his love. And so it is that these people who are asleep to wonder are astounded to wonder so they can awake to the wonder of God's love. So they can wake up to the wonder of God's love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's the same author who also said that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. He's not going to just pour out grace with all, without also giving us a good measure of truth as well. And those are the things that God uses to heal us. He will not leave us asleep in our declining spiritual state. He will not leave us traveling one degree off course for years and years and years and years and years without giving us plenty of opportunity to make those corrections and come back under the safety and the protection of his love. The most published Christmas song of all time is Joy to the World. Those words were penned by Isaac Watt exactly 300 years ago this year, 1719, 300 years ago. He penned these words, beautiful theology, 
It talks about the anticipation, the celebration, the salvation, and finally that culmination and adoration. In verse 1, he says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. You feel that anticipation. It's coming, it's coming. Let every heart prepare him room. Get the baby room ready. Get ready for snow day. Better get to the store. Let every heart prepare him room because the king is coming. And then in verse 2, it, it, con- it continues with celebration. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. There's a celebration that's happening not just in humanity but in the earth that God created. There's a celebration because the king is coming. In verse 3, we see the salvation of God. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Wherever there's death and destruction in your life, he came to make his blessings flow. Isn't that beautiful? But verse 4 changes this and reemphasizes what we're talking about today, and this is the culmination of all of this. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Grace and truth, righteousness and love. Righteousness is just a judgment that's pronounced in your favor. There was so many things that that we could not do for ourselves where we would have been found lacking, where, where our sin, our choices took us off course and we failed. We missed the mark. But when Jesus came, he pronounced us righteous because now God saw through the sacrifice that we accept. No one can make you accept that, but it is a free gift that God gives to each of us. And when we choose to accept that, we become clothed in the righteousness of God. So it's no longer God seeing something that deserves judgment, but God sees the righteousness of Christ over us. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And why both? Because judgment without love would be unbearable. Judgment without love would be unbearable. But love without judgment would also be meaningless. We need both. We need both of these things at work so that we can awaken to the wonder of his love. And that's why Psalm 31 talks about seeing his love even when we're a city under siege. Even when we're going through difficult times. Even when God is pointing out an area of truth. Even when he's digging under the surface and lifting things that we'd rather not deal with. There is a measure of God's love for us that he shows us that helps us to see you see when we're doing when we're going through those difficult times or places he wants us to recognize and be desperate for him to see our need for him and the issue is not his lack of care or his lack of love the real issue is the state of our hearts and God wants to put a light on that and show us exactly where we need to do that, because the truth is we crowd him out, and sometimes we push him out in our pain. We walk away. We remove our heart from him when he wants to be near. Now, our lives are living letters. 2 Corinthians 3, 2 talks about that, how our lives are living letters. And when we go through difficult times, the tendency is, at least for me, I want to pick up the pen. 
I want to take the pen out of God's hand and out of the story he's writing for my life. I want to pick it up, and I want to start editing. I want to change the dialogue. I want to write in a few characters or write out a few characters. You know, I want to have a change of scenery so I can escape a hard situation. I want to plot twist anything. I want to pick up that pen and start writing. And as long as I do that, I can do that, but I will be moving off course. Or I can say, God, I don't understand the whole plot, but I do know that you see it from beginning to end. And he has not for one second in our lives ever dropped the pen and said, okay, good luck. Not one time. He keeps that pen in his hand and he keeps writing and writing and writing. And even when I start editing and trying to do this, he's like, no, we're gonna do this. Okay, let's get back on course. And let's do that because God in his love always brings me back to that place. And that's where we see this fuller understanding of the love of God. It's not just the happy, happy love of God, the joyous, giddy feelings that we feel for God, although that is a part of it. But the love that he talks about in Psalm 31 is has said. It's a different kind of love. It's a different expression of love that, that is much fuller. It talks about the loving kindness of God the loving kindness of God. And there are three aspects to that. There is his strength, there's his steadfastness, and love. Show me the wonders of your love, this kind of love. When I'm a city under siege, that's the kind of love I need. I need a strong love. I need a steadfast love. I need a merciful, kind love. When you have friends that come in your life when all the situations and circumstances of your life are going great, we call those fair-weather friends. But a true friend is a foxhole friend. That's the friend that will get in the foxhole when you are under siege and you're under attack and will crawl down in that muddy mess that you find yourself in and said, I'm not leaving. I'm gonna stay right by your side and we're gonna fight this through together. You are never, ever alone when you surrender to the love of God because his love crawls into the foxholes of our lives and starts fighting for us and with us or if we're injured and wounded, kind of stands guard over us until help can come. That's the kind of love that we wanna see when we are under siege. We need the wonders of his love. So in that way, I don't know how he'll show up, whether he'll show up wondrously or wonderfully, but I know and I have confidence that God will show up. He will come for me. And so it, then it becomes not about the act of his wonders. I really don't care whether he acts wonderfully or wondrously in my life. I don't care what it means, but my heart becomes so desperate for him that I just wanna see his love. I just wanna see him even if it means I'm under siege, even if it means things are hard, I just want to see him. I just want that relationship with him. Show me the wonders of his love. I mentored a lady a few years ago, and worship team, you can come on up. I mentored a, a lady a few years ago who asked a question that was so profound. I've never forgotten it. And she shared um, about some very difficult, very real situations in her life that were so hard and so tragic that you, just, you were just speechless. But she turned around, she said, Stephanie, 
can I hold both trust and disappointment? Like, there it is. Can I hold both trust and disappointment? Can they, can they be held in the same hand? <laughs> and with our God, the answer is always yes. You can hold both your trust in him and your disappointments and your questions and your doubts and your discouragement. And in his hand, God will make sense of it by covering it all with his love. That strong, steadfast love. I encourage you to go back and read through Psalm 31 and, and, and Isaiah 29, especially Psalm 31 as you think about this and just see how God um, works when that area of holding both trust and disappointment, trust and questions, because David talks about this so much. God, I don't know what's going on here. I'm under siege. People are against me, but into your hands I commit my spirit. Same words that Jesus prayed on the cross. I don't know what's going on. I feel like everything's out of control, but my times are in your hand. God, show me the wonders of your love when I'm a city under siege, so let the faithful and the godly rejoice. Let them pour out their hearts before you. You can hold both in his presence. So if you're feeling that way today, I'd like to give you just three things that I think could help you. The first one is simply this. When you are going through a season like this, put your trust in God's love. His love is strong. It's steadfast. It's kind. It's merciful. It's big enough. It's strong enough. And the second thing is pay attention. Look for God's love. When you're going through a difficult time, look for him. Look for him. He loves you. That's the whole point of this Christmas season, this Advent season, is to remember that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's that foxhole friend. He's not leaving you alone and watching from a distance while you battle it out. He's in the foxhole with you right now. You are not alone. So look for his love. Look for his love. Isaiah 29 talks about how that Lebanon, the mighty cedars of Lebanon, would become a fertile field, and then the fertile field would seem like a forest. Basically, what he's saying there is there's a promise here that even if things are leveled, even if everything else is shaken out from under you, I can turn that barren place, I can turn that place that's been devastated, I can take those places that have been torn down, and I can start all over. I can plant them again so that the fertile field then will become a forest again. So even if you're cut down, even if you're leveled, God can get in there and work with his love in our lives to plant and just start all over, and then those places are going to become places of life and growth again. Isn't that a beautiful promise? And he said, and then that's when the humble can rejoice, and the blind eyes will see, and the deaf will hear. They're going to become awake. We will become awake when we experience him like that. And finally, pour out your love. When we're going through times like that, it's easy to withdraw ourselves and to move away from God's presence, but that's exactly the time when we need to press into his heart to take all the pain that we feel and everything that we know is going on around us and just take it and say, God, I don't understand, but I'm pressing it into your heart and allowing him to show us what he wants to show us. Charles Spurgeon, I was, as I was studying, I was reading a commentary about Psalm 31, and Charles Spurgeon had this beautiful quote that's, been, that's stuck with me for 
this whole time of study, and he simply said, gratitude is never short of subjects. Her Ebenezer's, it's just a, an Old Testament term for like a place of altar, a place where God worked, and they set up an altar there so they could remember. Her Ebenezer stands so close together as to wall up her path to heaven on both sides so that whether in cities or in hamlets, doesn't matter the circumstances, whether in cities or hamlets, our blessed Lord has revealed himself to us, we will never forget the hallowed spots. Whether it's on a lonely mount of Hermon or the village of Emmaus, where a couple of disciples walked a path after the crucifixion of Jesus. The rock of Patmos, where John was exiled unfairly. Or the wilderness of Horeb, all are alike renowned when God manifests himself to us in robes of love. But he doesn't stop there. He says, holy amazement uses interjections where adjectives utterly fail. Notes of exclamation suit us when words of explanation are of no avail. If we cannot measure, we can marvel. Though we may not be able to calculate with accuracy, we can adore with fervency. Even if I can't make sense of what God's doing in my life, even if I don't understand why he's lifting this to the surface, I always have a choice about my response. Would you stand If we cannot measure, we can marvel. And if we can't calculate with accuracy, we can still adore with fervency. We can still praise him anyway. We can give him glory and praise. And that's what I would invite you to do right now, just to close your eyes. And whether that is a physical response of lifting your hands, that's something that's familiar for me. Or whether you just need to, in your awe, be silent before God. I would invite you to respond, to just tell him what's going on in your life. He already knows. God, you see everything that we're facing right now. Lord, you see all that we've been walking through over these last few weeks, even over our whole life. Lord, we've not had one day where you've dropped a pin. Not had one day of our lives where you've abandoned us. And Lord, even if we can't understand, even if we're disappointed, Lord, we can take all of those places, all of those questions, and we can press our pain into your heart knowing that you are good, you are merciful, you're steadfast. You are love. Lord, show us the wonders of your love. Show us the wonders of your love. As we respond today, there are several ways as, as the team sings, you can receive communion. I invite you to do that. That's a wonderful way to respond. And there are communion stations set up around the balcony as well as here where you can come and just individually respond. Maybe you need to take a few minutes and journal through. There are a few reflection questions on the screen that you can begin to think about. Maybe you need to write them down and take them with you into this next week. Or there are prayer walls where you can go. Maybe you want to write a prayer. Lord, I don't understand this. This is what's going on. This is what I'm asking you for. Or maybe God has answered a prayer and you're in a place of just marveling at the wonders of God's love. Write out, a, write out a praise. Give him thanks and praise for that. But in some way, whether it's thinking about it, writing about it, responding in communion, and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, let's take a few minutes to respond before we leave this place today.